0: The scripture reading this morning is from Galatians five, sixteen through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So I want to talk just a moment about fruit. Um, I, I love fruit. Uh, here was my routine in middle school. I would come home from school, turn on Batman the Animated Series, and, and yes, <laughs> and pound like a six-pack of Granny Smith apples. I mean, I loved fruit. I had no idea how my body was stood that much. But anyway, love fruit. And there's few things There are few things that are as pleasant to eat than a perfectly ripe piece of fruit. Amen? I mean, if you've ever had a crisp apple or a juicy peach or pear or plump strawberries or a sweet orange, I mean, this is nature's candy. Refreshing, life-giving, enjoyable, beautiful. Fruit is a telling and appropriate metaphor for the Christian life which is to be lived by the Spirit. You see, because fruit is life-giving, fruit has freshness, fruit has sweetness to it. Fruit in abundance is a sign of life and health. Fruit is beautiful and desirable. All of these things should characterize the Christian and the Christian community. This is what the Spirit does in us and through us. He brings new life. He brings spiritual vitality to our souls. We're spiritually juicy, not dried up. He brings a freshness and a sweetness that empowers us. And we are to be life-giving to those that we engage. He marks our lives with a beauty that when we live it out in front of other people is attractive. And, And people begin to ask questions and wonder what makes us tick. This is the life that the Spirit intends for us. But I wonder how often does it feel that the metaphor of fruit has missed you? Maybe rather than describing your walk with the Lord as something fruitful and juicy, maybe it feels a little bit like stale and dry bread. Does this mean that what is described in Galatians 5 here is only for a select few Christians, ones that have reached a particular spiritual maturity, kind of the super-Christians? Absolutely not. This description in Galatians 5 is to mark every believer. This is to be the normal, average mark of a Christian. There's nothing particularly remarkable here other than the fact that this is the power of the Holy Spirit. We are all, if you belong to Christ, we are all empowered to live this way. God's word is describing the abundance that we have in Christ. And so there is both incredible promise and warning here. There is promise that if you belong to Jesus, you're going to exhibit the fruits. The Spirit will work in you. The Spirit will produce this in your life. It is the work of the Spirit. It's not our own efforts. And so what this means, if there is no fruit, if there is no sign of these things, if there is no life in you, then you do not belong to Jesus. Now before I I cause like half the room or maybe the whole room, I don't know, to to start to doubt their salvation, let, let me... Make something very clear. Fruit grows. It starts as a seed, and then it becomes a plant or a tree or a bush, and then the fruit comes. It's a process. It grows. So if you're sitting in your seat this morning and saying, I know I believe in Jesus, but right now it doesn't feel like life is very fruitful, hey, this is where the promise is for you, that God's work is taking place in your life. You don't need to despair. But if there is no life, if there is no vitality, if there is no desire, if there is no sense that I love Jesus and I belong to him, then what this passage does is it confronts you and it says, look, you can't fake it. You can't pretend the Christian life. The Christian life isn't just a bunch of rules that you follow. It is actually new spiritual life birthed in us by the Spirit of God. So again, let me ask, what? experience do you have? Are you experiencing the fruitfulness that the Spirit intends? Even if that growth is painful, even if that growth is messy, are you experiencing the power of transformation? How the good news for you this morning is that the Spirit is not weak, he's not ineffectual, he's not absent, he hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't left you on the side. He hasn't looked at you, and you go, oh, you're too broken, you're too messy, I'm going to move on to the next person. No, you have hope this morning. There is power for you this morning. And so, as we reflect on what it means to, to be fruitful, we need to ask ourselves some questions. How do we experience this fruitfulness that is laid out for us in Galatians 5? Well, what we read earlier in Galatians 5.16 is it says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. This means we are active, we're engaged. While we don't grow fruit on our own, in our own strength, we aren't passive. We don't sit on our hands and sort of mindlessly go about our day expecting God to just zap us, and then all of a sudden things are different. That betrays a laziness, a spiritual laziness, and it misunderstands how God's power actually works in us. As we like to say, grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And those are two different things. Galatians 5, 16, and 17 also tells us this. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So walking by the spirit means jumping into a battle that is going to be hard. And so the fact that there is struggle For those of you that are experiencing struggle, the fact that there is struggle is a good sign because it means the Spirit is at work in you. If there were no struggle, if you were just giving into your sin, the Spirit would not be alive in you. So this is going to be a struggle. It is going to be messy. Our expectations should be set here from Galatians 5. Your desires, your sinful desires, do not want you to be fruitful. They do not want you to follow the Spirit. They're opposed to the spirit. That lives in you. So we have to be active. We have to be engaged. We need to take an active role. We are sort of undergardeners. If God is the gardener who is cultivating fruit in our hearts, we are the undergardeners who are taking responsibility to cooperate and work with the Lord. So, what does that look like? What does it look like to walk by the Spirit? You think this would probably be a pretty important question to answer, right? If if there's promise here that says if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh, that promise is incredible. So we should probably know how to walk by the Spirit because if that's what we want to experience, man, how, how helpful would it be to, to actually know what this means because maybe it sounds a little too mystical for you. Walk by the Spirit, what does that mean? That, that, that sounds like, really disconnected from normal life. That sounds like those really incredibly intense experiences that some people get. Is that what it means? If I'm not having those kinds of experiences, does that mean that I'm not walking by the Spirit? No. What we're going to see is walking by the Spirit is so down-to-earth, ordinary, nitty-gritty, in the dirt and mess of your life, but that's where the God's power works. So two points from this passage concerning what it means to walk by the Spirit. This is what it means to actually cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. The first is we crucify the flesh. We do something with those desires when we experience them. The second is we keep in step with the Spirit. We follow, we're proactive in following the Spirit's leading in our life. So let's first spend some time reflecting on what it means to crucify the flesh. So a quick recap from last week. We, we, we spent a little bit of time reflecting on this word flesh and what it means. So in scripture, sometimes flesh simply means your physical body. You're in a body of flesh. But often it also means the sinful desires and impulses, the inclination to sin that we have. See, when God created humanity, when he created Adam and Eve, he created them sinless. Humanity was created to be in perfect relationship with God to fellowship with him, to submit to his good and just rule. However, rebellion entered the picture. Adam and Eve, rather than wanting to submit to God and live in good relationship with him, said, hey, we're going to define good and evil on our own. We're going to define our own meaning and purpose. God, we don't need you. We want freedom from you. Sin enters the picture. Rebellion enters the picture. And the rest of humanity throughout time has been cursed with sin. We are now born into sin. Our hearts are rebellious. It's not just that we're kind of weak and broken and we make mistakes. No, we're born into rebellion. We're born with hearts that are bent away from the Lord. And here's what comes out of our hearts. Verses 19 through 21 tell us the works of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Look, apart from Christ, we're enslaved to the works of the flesh. We're enslaved to our sinful nature. We can't escape sort of the gravitational pull of our sinful nature because here's here's what happens. Our sinful pursuits of sex and pleasure and success and wealth and relationships and approval, they form habits in us. They form habits in our hearts, in our minds, and with our actions. And those habits become necessity. Those habits transform into things that you can't live without. Because what your flesh tells you, what your rebellion tells you, what your sin tells you, is you have to have the sex, you have to have the pleasure, you have to have the success and the wealth and the approval, because without them you're nothing, And when you believe that, when your heart is oriented around that, you are enslaved to your sin. And as this passage tells us, we're not just enslaved, we're under the righteous and just judgment of God. Those who practice those things, those who live this way, will not inherit God's kingdom because they are in opposition to him. But here's the good news of the gospel. Here's the hope we have through Jesus Christ. Through the cross of Christ, you can be forgiven and set free. Because on the cross, Jesus did something powerful. When he was crucified, he took the penalty of sin on himself, the judgment that you and I deserved, the wrath that you and I deserved. He took in full, he paid it in full, the full debt of our judgment, the full debt of our sin was put on him so that we could be forgiven completely and forever, but not only On the cross was our sinful nature and the debt of our of our sin paid. Our old self, that that self that likes to sin, that self that was in rebellion to God, was crucified with him so that the power of sin could be broken. Listen to what Romans six tells us. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's what this means. It wasn't just Jesus who died on that cross. He took your old man and he crucified it. He killed it. He put an end to it. God crucified your flesh, your sinful desires, your passions. As Paul states in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. This is true if you belong to Jesus. For all Christians, you've been crucified for Christ. For you who are in Christ, you were once enslaved to your sin, but that sin has been nailed to the cross. And when Jesus died and went into the grave, he took your old self, he took your sin with him, and when he resurrected from the grave, he left it there. Praise God, the power of sin has been broken. Christ crucified our old man. He crucified our flesh. He killed its power. But it's not only God who crucifies our flesh. We crucify our flesh as well. And we see this after contrasting the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians 5.24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus... Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, in the Galatians 2 sense, Paul says, I have been crucified. That was something God did. In Romans 6, our old man has been crucified. That's something God did. But here in Galatians 5, this is something we do. We too crucify our flesh. In what sense? Well, when we come to Christ, when we turn from our sin, when we turn from our rebellion, when we come to God as our true Lord and King, when we come to God as our Father, we bring our sin and we nail it to Jesus' cross saying, I'm done with this. No more. It's no longer my master. It's no longer my identity. It's no longer the thing I live for. I'm nailing it to the cross. It is dying here with Christ. Its power no longer speaks a word over me. I'm done. I'm repenting. I'm turning from it. So so in a sense, here's what we need to recognize, that God crucified our flesh and our sin. He broke its power so that we then can come and actually repent and submit and nail that sin ourselves to the cross. You see, if God doesn't do this, if Jesus doesn't nail it first, then we're powerless to do this. But the fact that he has means that we can put our faith in Christ and we can nail that sin to the cross. So I would ask those of you in here this morning that don't profess faith in Christ, those of you that are still holding on to that sin and that rebellion, God holds out freedom for you. God holds out salvation for you. God says that your old man can be put to death, that the judgment that you sit under because of your rebellion can be wiped clean, the debt can be wiped clean. And this isn't through your performance. This isn't through do a bunch of good things so that God will, like you know, through Jesus Christ alone, trusting in his grace and his mercy. And crucifixion, how oh, this is an apt description for our, how our sinful desires die. If you're familiar with crucifixion, you know that it was a slow and it was a painful death. When Roman criminal was crucified, his actual death took place over hours, if not days. And it was slow. Similar for us, like our desires of the flesh, they're nailed to the cross and they are defeated and they are as good as dead. Their power has been broken, but they haven't expired. They haven't ultimately been destroyed yet. So what this means is we still have to contend with them. Right. The war has been won, but they're still fighting. It's like, have you ever heard of those, the stories of Japanese soldiers that after World War II and some of the islands in the Pacific that people would come across these Japanese soldiers that had been holed up like in caves and they came out rushing to fight. They didn't know the war was over. Like victory had been declared, but they're still fighting. That's how our sinful desires are. They're done. They've lost, but they're still fighting. They still haven't expired yet. And we experience their death as a slow, painful process. Not in the physical sense. We're not beating our flesh. We're not harming ourselves physically, but in our souls. We experience the slow, painful death of those desires. Because look, for a time, that was who you were. That was your identity. That's what you found your life in. That's what you went to for comfort. That big part of you is not going to go quietly. And so it is a slow, painful process. We feel this battle between the spirit and our sinful desires. And here's what this means look, there's no shortcuts. Like the Christian life is not a shortcut, it's not fast forward to the end. Praise God, someday those sinful desires will be done away with forever and we will be completely and utterly free. But until that day, this is a process, it's slow. Day by day by day, we are walking by the Spirit. We are walking by faith. We are walking to cultivate a fruitful life. The conflict shows that the struggle is real. The Spirit is at work. Don't let, don't let the conflict discourage you. You should be encouraged. I know that is hard. Look, in the middle of a, of a fight, in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a struggle, if I come up to you and say, hey, let the struggle encourage you, you're probably going to want to punch me, right? Right? Like, shut up with that. (laughs) But it's true. The conflict shows that the spirit is at work, that that death is taking place, that your desires are slowly losing their strength. Look, I I I say that, and I I don't want to just be glib. This isn't just pastor, you know, ah, yeah, pastor's just saying that. I I, I, Look, personally, and and I know walking with many of you and, and being in relationship with many of you, like some days you just feel like you're whipped. Some days you just feel beat. But recognize how the fact that you get back up, the fact that you haven't thrown it in, the fact that you still walk in community, the fact that you are still holding on to Christ, that is an encouragement. That is real. That, that is not just good sentiment. That is real. And here's, here's where we have hope because crucifixion, while it was slow and while it was painful, it was final. Like when, when a criminal was crucified on the cross, a guard stood by and made sure they died, made sure that they didn't come off the cross themselves or someone went up to pull them off. It was final. And the same thing, that desire, the death of those desires, the death of that sin, it is final. It has been defeated. And so don't let the struggle and the experience that you are in day to day pull you away from the promise that you're heading to victory. The final word over your life is victory, that you will defeat, you will experience the grace of God in your life. We we have great hope because if we walk by the Spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh because they've been killed. The Spirit will keep our sin on the cross. The Spirit will keep us in God's hands. The Spirit is at work. Our sin will not overtake us and overwhelm us. But here's where we run into a problem. Here's where we need to be honest. Because while our flesh has been crucified... Past tense, we also need to actively keep it there. We need to be ongoing crucifying our flesh. We don't run back to it. We don't run up to it and pull the nails out and take it off the cross and start to nurse it back to health. Here's why so many of us, and I include myself in this, fail to live in the freedom and fruitfulness the Spirit intends because we keep going back to our sin that's nailed on the cross and we start messing around with it. Like we hear its voice calling out to us, hey, hey, come here. Hey, do you remember all the good times we had? Hey, 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 you remember all the pleasure we used to have? You remember how much you needed me and how good I was to you? And rather than walking away and not giving any voice, we, we kind of like, what was that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. And we start thinking about it. We start entertaining it. We start starting to question whether or not it's actually telling us the truth. So we mess around with our sin. We, we, we flirt with it. We, we, we play with it. We, there, there's this, this sense where we'll, we'll entertain that sin will entertain those desires. We start dancing with dead things rather than just letting them rot. And in that, and in that, we do not walk in the freedom and the fruitfulness that God intends for us. We need to keep our flesh crucified. I love this exhortation from John Stott concerning keeping our flesh crucified. He says this, we need to learn To leave it there, that is our sin. When some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thought invades our mind, we must kick it out at once. It is fatal to begin to examine it and consider whether we are going to give it into it or not. We have declared war on it. We are not going to resume negotiations. We have settled the issue for good. We are not going to reopen it. We have crucified the flesh. We are never going to draw the nails. I love that imagery. We've declared war, no more negotiation. God has crucified your flesh. You, when you came to Christ, you crucified your flesh. Keep it crucified. Don't return. It's not your master. It's not your identity. It's not your life. Its voice has nothing to say to you. Don't listen. In fact, if you hear its voice, walk up to it and drive the nail deeper. Kill it. And keep killing it. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit. We crucify our flesh. But it's not only that we crucify our flesh, we also keep in step with the Spirit. We, we also proactively walk in a fruitful life. For as Paul writes in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So walking by the Spirit, as we see in verses 16 and 17, is the same thing as keeping in step with the Spirit. To to live a fruitful life means we keep in step or we follow a cadence of the Spirit. The word here translated keep in step is a military term. It it means stay in formation. And so those of you in the military, you you recognize what it means to march in formation. I mean, at least I know the Army and Marines do. Does the chair force march? Don't hit me, don't hit me, don't hit me, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. But when they march, when they march, soldiers stay in formation. And they do so how? By following the cadence of their commanding officer. They follow the cadence of, that is being called out. And so the Spirit, the Spirit is our commanding officer. He's calling out a cadence that we're to follow. He's calling out a direction that we're to follow. And so what is the cadence that the Spirit calls out for us? What's well, the beautiful truth of the gospel Look, the spirit, the spirit calls out this cadence that God is good, that he is faithful, that he is true, and that he's just and he's worthy of submitting our lives to and finding our identity in him. That God is glorious. The spirit calls the cadence. God is glorious. We find our satisfaction and our joy and our pleasure in him. Oh, the spirit calls out the cadence of faith in Jesus Christ. That we indeed need salvation and rescue, but we cannot save ourselves through good works and performance. That salvation and freedom and transformation and renewal come through faith in Christ. So put your faith in Christ. And the Spirit calls out a cadence that looks very much like Jesus. The Spirit leads us in a way of Jesus. And so he calls us to live in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Because these are the way of Jesus. That spirit is calling a cadence for us to believe and us to live over and over and over. And so if he's calling out to you, if he's calling a cadence out to you, how do you hear? What are the ways by which we are tuning our hearts and our minds to the cadence of the spirit? Again, this is where we need to recognize that walking by the spirit is something that is in in many ways very ordinary it's, it's on the ground. It's nitty-gritty rhythm and routine of your life. It, it can be easy to think that walking by the Spirit is something extraordinary. It, it's hyper-spiritual. But the picture painted for us in Galatians 5 is lived-in day-to-day reality, lived-in day-to-day battle. We walk by the Spirit through the ordinary routines of our day. We tune our hearts through the ordinary means of grace that God gives us. So this is what this means. The Spirit uses ordinary, average, normal habits and practices and routines to shape us and cause us to worship more deeply and follow His cadence. Look, this is good news for you. This is good news for us because what this means is that we don't have to sort of seek out and run after this hyper-spiritual experience. And because a lot of you, you're like, I've never experienced that. I don't know what that's like. And then you begin to doubt whether the Spirit's at work in your life or whether you're walking by the Spirit or whether you can change. No. Just in the ordinary means of grace that he gives you, his power is at work. Make no mistake, though. In the ordinary, supernatural power is at work. In the ordinary means of grace, God is doing something extraordinary in you, but it takes place just in the natural rhythms and routines. So, so what does this look like in practice? Well, well, what are the ordinary means of grace? Well, one is prayer as we pray that the kingdom of God would come, as we pray and we depend upon the Lord and we ask the Lord to shape us and ask the Lord to move us and ask the Lord to transform us, what is he doing? He is forming our hearts. The spirit's cadence is being shaped in us to depend on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Go to the Lord for your needs. Go to the Lord for your power. The word of God whether it be preaching or whether we spend time studying the word, having gospel truth, having this amazing story of salvation pour into our minds and our hearts that God loves us. God loved the world, sinful, rebellious, broken world so much that he sent his son into the world to die and that Christ defeated our sin. He's resurrected and reigning and he's coming back one day to restore all things. That story, that truth permeates our heart as we take hold of it in God's word. And the cadence of the Spirit, faith in Christ, God is good, God is glorious, is shaped in us. Or how about worship? Man, I loved listening to you sing this morning. I don't know what it was, but it was especially loud in this room. And that is what we do when we are crying out to the Lord in worship, in praise, in lament. What's happening? The cadence of the Spirit is being called out in our hearts, and we're being shaped in our hearts, the deepest levels of our soul as we worship. What about confession and repentance? Hey, look, when those desires of the flesh come crashing in with their demands and we listen to them and we give into them, hey, we confess sin because we know Jesus forgives. But well, we don't need to try to earn his forgiveness. We don't try to impress him or do a bunch of good things to get him to like us so he will. No, we just run to him and say, Lord, I confess this sin. Free me. Renew me transform me. I want to keep in step with the Spirit. And so when we confess and repent, the cadence of the Spirit is being shaped in our hearts. And then something like the Lord's Supper. Why do we take communion every single Sunday? Here's why. Because the bread, in the bread, in the wine, every Sunday the gospel is held out for us. Every Sunday, tangibly speaking, Jesus has held out the promise that his body and his blood were given for our salvation And that when you come and receive, here's what God says to you. Jesus loves you. Jesus saves. Jesus is for you. You can trust in me. And Jesus is coming back one day. As we receive the Lord's Supper, we're stepping in cadence with the Lord. Oh, it's beautiful. These are just the ordinary, everyday means of grace for us. And then where we put it all together is in community. Like in community, you really need the Spirit. In community, you, you experience life and you're like, if the spirit doesn't do something in me, there's no way this is going to work. Because look, it is hard to forgive sometimes. It is hard to walk in unity the way God has called us to walk in unity. It is hard to ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness. It is hard to speak truth to someone and it is hard to receive truth. From someone, It is hard to disciple others and it's hard at times to be discipled by other people. So life in community is difficult at times. It's wonderful and beautiful, but it's difficult at times. And we need the Spirit because this is where the Spirit shapes us. This is how the Spirit shapes us in the fruit of the Spirit. Because here's what we need to recognize about the fruit of the Spirit. This is not just private me and Jesus morality. This is not just something that I do by myself and it's just kind of my own ethic. No, this has to be lived in community. This is a community ethic. Apart from the community of people, the community of God, you can't live the fruit of the Spirit. So let me, if I can, if I can push on you just a little bit, look, if the Spirit is leading you away from community to where you just, hey, I'll listen to a podcast at home by myself and me and Jesus, you're not listening to the Spirit. The Spirit will lead you into community so that you can live out the fruit of the Spirit among community. And, and here's the great promise that we have. We're, we're going to talk more in more detail about the, the fruit of the Spirit in the upcoming weeks, but just, just to kind of give a little bit of a contour of this. If your heart has been shaped by the gospel, if your heart has been shaped by the truth that God loves you, and, and that Jesus loves you and he's come and he has laid down his life for you. And he, he shows us that the, the greatest in the kingdom is the servant, the one who loves and serves other people. When that has your heart, when you've been shaped through prayer and through God's word and through worship and confession and repentance and receiving the sacraments. Like when, when you're being shaped in that way, what happens? You go into community and you love You start to see the beauty of love and the desire that I want to love my brothers and sisters. I want to love those who are far from Christ so they may experience the grace of God. When my identity is fully captured in Christ, when I don't have to try to impress you, and when your good doesn't threaten me, man, I am free to just love you. I am free to serve, and we are free to be in relationship together with no competition. That's the beauty of walking by the Spirit? Or how about joy? And when you know that you have been saved, when you know that Christ is coming to the world to save, and when you know that Jesus is returning to restore all things, that is the best news in the world. And no matter your circumstances around you, if you're taking hold of that truth, if you're being shaped by that truth, there's a joy about you. I'm not talking walking around, bouncing around like you are on a sugar rush. Some of you, that's your personality, and praise God for that. I'm talking about a joy that is satisfied in God, that when you talk about Jesus, when you engage other people, there's a light in your eyes that says, man, I have hope. Man, God has done something incredible in me and in this world. And no matter what may happen, man, I'm trusting and I'm resting in him. And that joy can be contagious. And you can be encouraging to one another. And you can share that joy. And then we can have a a church community that isn't walking around, navel-gazing, looking in our shoes, oh, man, you know, life is terrible and there's no hope. No, in the midst of our pain, we can still look up to the Lord and say, God, you're good, and that brings me joy and peace. Consider the power of peace in a community, That, that because God has brought peace between us and him and peace between one another, that we can actually cultivate real peace among one another. I'm not talking about peacekeeping, where we push things under the rug and where we ignore sin and where we don't ever try to confront one another and, and sort of there's this toxic sort of you know peace but really no one's close kind of community versus peacemaking, where we actually can confess sin and we can confront one another in love and we can repent and we can bring true reconciliation and true relationship. Or, or how about this? The peace that comes that when you walk by the spirit rather than playing around with your flesh, because when you're playing around with your flesh, what's going on in your soul? Chaos, turmoil, lack of peace, confusion, running around, what the heck should I do? But when you're walking by the spirit, when you're not listening to that, peace, calm, a sense of security. And when you live that out in community, man, that blesses other people. It's a wonderful, wonderful, life-giving experience. This is what the Lord does in us. The ordinary means of grace. This is how we tune our hearts to the cadence of the Spirit. And I want to be clear. These aren't religious rituals for us to perform to get God to like us or to earn his favor. They're means. They're the ways that God has said, I am going to work to shape you and transform you. I love the way that theologian J.I. Packer explains this. This is what he says. The Spirit works through means, through the objective means of grace. The Spirit shows his power in us, not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions, impressions, or prophecies, but rather by making these regular means effective to change us for the better and for the wiser as we go along. Here's Here's the point I really want you to grab a hold of. Habit-forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us in holiness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are all of them habitual ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. And those things are formed in us as we take hold of gospel truth, gospel promises through the ordinary means of grace. Then we go and we live these things out in community. This is the fruitful life, church. As I said, as we spend the next couple weeks looking a little more closely at the fruits of the Spirit, we have to start here. How do we cultivate these fruit? Well, we first, when those desires of the flesh come crashing in with their demands, we crucify them. We keep them on that cross. We don't mess around with them but then we proactively keep in step with the Spirit, listening to the cadence that is being called out in the gospel, listening to the cadence that's being called out in love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I want to encourage you. This, 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 in some ways, this may seem like, well, what are you saying? I just need to read my Bible more? I just need to come to church more? Well, yes and no. In one way, yes. In one way, no. In the sense, no, that if you're just going through empty ritual, if you're just showing up, if you're just kind of reading your Bible, if if you're just kind of going through the motions, then no. But if those things are actually shaping you, if you're actually taking hold of those those truths, if you're actually engaging and your heart is being shaped in worship, then absolutely. And, And look, you don't have to invent other means. You don't have to try to go and figure out how to do this. There's not some secret thing out there that you have to discover on your own. It's not on some book that you can find on Amazon. It's right here. And the beauty of us is there's promise. And so, church, I want us to take hold of this promise. I want us to walk in fruitfulness. And we do that by taking hold of the promise that we have through Jesus Christ, through the ordinary means and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.